Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today's film on Weird House Cinema is the 1994 sci-fi action thrill ride, Time Cop, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, Ron Silver, and Mia Sara. I had seen this movie before, but not in a long time. And boy, was this something. If you want to be transported, mind and body, back to the year 1994, watch Time Cop. Time Cop is a time capsule, uh, not only because it has scenes of characters going to malls in 1994, which is a kind of sight that I'm sure many people our age can't help but be uh, profoundly stirred by, mm. uh, but it's also a type of movie that I think used to exist, and I don't know if it still does. If, it, if there are still movies like this, I don't know what the examples are, uh, but it is essentially an R-rated action movie for kids. Action movies nowadays are all, they're all PG-13, you know, because they want to get you know, all the, I guess, younger teenagers in the theaters. But this movie is definitely R-rated, does not shy away from the F-words and the blood squirting everywhere, but it is not at all a dark, gritty, morally ambiguous tale of depravity and revenge, kind of thing you might expect from an R-rated action movie. Instead, it's like a live-action cartoon. It is a goofy, goobery, brightly colored slapstick fest with nonstop kicks to the groin. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, warning up front, if you have like a groin strain or anything and you don't want to watch people uh, get injured in the groin, uh, then you might want to wait on this movie till you're healed up. I was trying to think of other movies in this this category, like the, you know, the cartoonish action movie with a high silliness factor and a well-earned R rating. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I think Demolition Man was another one like this and came out around the exact same time. 
Uh, but the other thing I want to say is that at least from my perspective, Time Cop is awesome. I was shocked how much I liked this. This movie is dumb as hell, but I thought it held up really well for what it is. The 98 minute runtime just races by the movie will lower your IQ by several points, but I thought it was a truly entertaining, a spectacular amusement. Uh, I, I agree on all of that. Yeah, it's a very tight film. It doesn't give you any opportunity to really uh, be bored by the proceedings. Um, great action, as we'll discuss. Uh, and when it comes to the IQ points, absolutely. Don't think too hard about the time travel in this movie. Uh, don't look at the light, Marion, uh, because if you do, uh, you're going to break something. Um, so, so be prepared. I'm not saying it's still a fun exercise, but just know you are going to run up against the wall if you try and figure this out, if you try and chart this. In fact, I, I found at least uh, one blog post online where somebody tried to create some some charts to understand the various time travel shenanigans in this movie. And they just threw their hands up as well. This is not primer. This is not where like you've charted out and it actually does all make sense. This is just like, it, I, I have no idea how these people got here this time. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Yeah. People started traveling through time and it's a mess, uh, which I mean, is kind of, that's kind of the theme. Uh, so embrace the messiness of this film. Now, when it comes to time travel, this is our fourth proper time travel movie on Weird House Cinema. It comes up occasionally. It's like a side gimmick. I think I had to remind myself of this, but in The Eliminators, the mad scientist in that also does time travel, but it's not a time travel movie. Our time travel movies have been Free Jack, Trancers 2, and Time After Time prior to this. All movies with their own unique pleasures, but I think this is our first martial arts focused time travel movie. That's right. Yeah, this one is a definite martial arts picture. I would describe the martial arts action in this film as not being, it's not about epic uh, stories. Like I think I've said before, a, a proper action sequence, be it with swords or fisticuffs, it needs to tell a story. And especially in a martial arts movie, your fights need to tell stories. In some movies, those fights are like novels within the film. In this book, in this, not in this book, in this movie, Time, uh, Time Cop, uh, the fights are more like short stories, but they're really solid short stories. Well, I don't know if you agree with this. I, I was divided on the action scenes. Basically, I thought all of the, um, all of the action scenes involving guns, most of those were kind of, eh, I don't know, I could take them or leave them. They were kind of standard 90s mm -hmm. action slop, you know, you, close up of one person shooting, close up of another person shooting, a bunch of like barrels exploding in the meantime. Uh, but the hand to hand fights and like knife fights and, and all that, that was top notch. Really, really good stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's the melee. Uh, that is where the uh, the amusement and the entertainment is here. I mean, that's why you have Van Damme. You, you, I mean, it's okay if Van Damme fires a gun in an action movie, but it's not really what you want to see. Yeah. Unless he's doing the splits at the same time, and then I guess that counts. Oh, he does a, a world-class uh, jump splits in this movie. Uh, but, there, but the other thing I would say is that the hand-to-hand -hand fight scenes are excellent, but they're excellent in a cartoony way. They They don't come off as particularly, like, realistic, plausible fights. Uh, there's like, there's one I've got in mind where there is a knife fight where the characters are just, it's like a sword duel. Mm -hmm. So what you expect to see in a sword duel in a movie is characters slamming their swords into the other person's sword. That makes more sense with a sword because you might be using it to to try to hit and to parry. But there's a scene in this movie where they're doing that with like six inch long knives. Yeah. <laughs> they're just like slamming their knife blades together. 
Yeah, and and plus, this is definitely a movie where I guess our, our lead character gets extra points if he does a quality kill. If there's like a fatality move involved, so it's you know it's it's very uh, based in all of that. Now to come back to the time travel aspects of this, I want to. I want to go back to a continuing conversation we've had, uh, Joe, in previous time travel episodes, I guess particularly time after time, uh, you talked about time travel story types. I thought you might refresh everyone's memory on this and figure out exactly where Time Cop falls into all of that. Okay, well, so these were story categories I created. This is not like a, you know, a accepted literary framework, <laughs> so don't go trying to cite this in your uh, you know, film or literature classes. But these were the basic types of time travel stories I could think of in our Time After Time episode. So the first one was what I called Journey to Time Island. This is a time travel story that uses the future or the past primarily just as a setting. It's a hostile setting for an adventure narrative. So it might as well be Skull Island or an alien planet in a Star Trek episode. It's just an unfamiliar setting where characters must face unfamiliar challenges. Mm -hmm. Second type of story is what I called Fish Out of Time. This is usually what you find in time travel comedies. It is the time-based equivalent of the Fish Out of Water plot, uh, where most of the, the tension, its comedic tension, comes from people not getting it, not understanding local conditions, not being able to uh, adapt to the, the expectations and the you know, social taboos and stuff of the time to which they have been transported. Time After Time had some of that with, you know, H.G. Wells walking around in, in uh, 1970s cities and being scared of the traffic <laughs> and then going to the Scottish breakfast restaurant where he enjoys palm frits. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, the McDonald's. Mm -hmm. Okay, the third category was what I called Fresh Eyes for Bad Eras. This is primarily a, a story that tries to comment on the particular features of the time in which they are set, usually the present, but sometimes the future. Uh, and sort of have social commentary about it. So the time traveler is able to bring fresh eyes to look on the present and see how wrong it is, usually notice bad things about it that, you know, all of the chrono locals have just learned to ignore. Mm. I think there are two main subtypes of the Fresh Eyes for Bad Eras plot. One is like the modern world sucks, and this is observed either by somebody from the future or from the past. And the other is, if we keep this up, look what the future is going to be like. It's going to be bad. Yeah, this this is a great one, of course, because it's always that chance to visit the um, like the, the dystopian or post-apocalyptic future and realize, oh, this is a bad course we're on. We've got a course correct because look at all these flaming barrels in the street. That's right. Okay, fourth category of story is what I called debugging history. This is one that focuses kind of on the butterfly effect or on the consequences of actions across time. Uh, it's where people are trying to, like, isolate a variable in the progression of history and human life and maybe alter it in order to fix something that goes wrong. It's, it's primarily concerned with consequences of decisions and long-term ripple effects. Uh, a great example of this is Back to the Future. Yes. And then the last category is what I would call the time travel arms race story. This is the type of story that is actually the most focused on time travel itself and the kind that focuses on time travel as a mechanism. It takes it seriously as a mechanism and usually as a weapon, something that grants you godlike power. These plots often have 
competing time travelers, like maybe both the the heroes and the villains have access to time travel and they're often like trying to go back further and further to get ahead of the other one or change something or fix something. Uh, and it recognizes time travel as a, a dangerous, chaotic, uncontrollable power, essentially. In fact, I would say this type of story is the one that best fits Time Cop. I think Time Cop is a time travel arms race movie. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's that's a good comparison to make. Because yeah, time travel technology is just straight up compared to atomic power in this movie. And the way that it is explored is it's explored as this thing that is ultimately a great threat that has to be controlled. Uh, there are discussions on should it be policed or should it just be banned outright or prevented in some manner. Uh, so uh, absolutely, I, like this is a time travel arms race all the way. There is a part in the movie. Well, we can discuss the implications of this, but I did think it was funny. Whereas this character who's a politician is like, we shouldn't be trying to police the use of time travel. We should just ban it. <laughs> what? I mean, I get, I get, I think what he was saying there is like, why are we paying for time cops that are going out like after the fact and trying to fix things and chase people down when maybe we need to be carrying out real world strikes on time travel, travel facilities, which I think they also allude to yeah. trying to do like that's going on. Maybe they just mean we need to double down on that. I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so, yeah, I think time cop is an arms race plot. Uh, it, it's not really especially concerned with social commentary or satire, there's a little bit of that, but what's there doesn't really depend on the time travel mechanic. It is mainly concerned with the implications of time travel as a technology and inevitably as a weapon. And you know what? I, I think I would sort of agree with the the spirit of the movie, which is that if time travel to the past were invented, it would immediately be misused to disastrous effects. Uh, I think that's likely true. And I think, as the movie says, it's quite plausible that the invention of time travel would be far worse than the invention of nuclear weapons. Just a genuine nightmare. Yeah, all of history just swirling the drain, pretty much. All right, so the elevator pitch on this one, I mean, it's basically in the title. You don't even really need to go further than Time Cop. But uh, basically, the, the pitch is time crimes are happening throughout all of human history, and it's up to a single government agency and one incorruptible Time Cop to police them. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's right. Now, it's probably worth noting as well that this is, our, I think, our first true cop movie. And by that, I don't mean a movie that has cops in it or concerns police work or cops saving the day. I mean a movie that has this, like, blank cop, like maniac cop, robo cop, scanner cop, and so forth. Yeah, hyphen cop movies. Yes. Uh, though most of them don't actually have a hyphen. You know, I, I would not say I am especially fond of cop movies in general, but I love sci-fi or supernatural hyphen cop movies almost as much as I love sci-fi or supernatural wrestling movies. And I'm going to pitch some ideas right now for aspiring filmmakers. Uh, Lich Cop. We, we, I may have suggested that one on the show before, but if not, mm -hmm. there you go. You can have it. Take it. Yep. I, give, natural, I give it to you. Natural progression uh, from Maniac Cop, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. How about Predator Cop? Yeah, it's got like the the blades and the and the and the the like uh, razor frisbee. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that I could see that happening. Mm -hmm. Mars Cop. That's pretty. St Surely somebody. You know, the the if they haven't made that, go and do it. Uh, how about Druid Cop? Mm, druid cop druid cop could work yeah there's some mistletoe badge element you could play with there i don't know shark cop shark cop 
Shark Cop does seem to exist on the Z-grade level, at least. I did mm-hmm. a little searching around. Uh, nothing that anybody needs to seek out, but uh, great minds think alike when it comes to Shark Cop. And why not, in the end, Lawnmower Man Cop? I mean, we live in a world where we have more than one Scanner Cop movie, so yeah, Lawnmower Man Cop just makes sense. Okay, I think we're about to do the trailer, right? Should we do the trailer? Yes, let's listen to this trailer. It's a good one. Well, hold on. Before we play it, I want you folks out there to listen for this. So this is a a classic 90s-style in-a-world trailer, and it says, One man, not once, but twice. All right, here we go. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous. Let me go, Max. I'm not hurting anybody. Got to take you back. In the year 2004, time travel is a reality. You are charged with violations of TEC code 40.8. Time travel with intent to alter the future. And a crime. It turns out going back in time is a pretty easy way to make money. I think you got yourself a shipment of gold. You're taking a general aid. The genie is already out of the bottle. The technology is there. Now, one man... You ever hear the name Aaron McComb? ...is about to take the ultimate power trip. He's gonna be president. You don't need the press, you don't need endorsements, you don't even need the truth. You need money. But to enforce the laws of time... Are we still together in ten years? Am I dead? One man is determined to stop him. I cannot go back to save her. This scumbag is not going back to steal money. Stay here, Walker. My future, you're dead. I think you planned too far ahead. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Ron Silver. Will you get him? Mia Sarah. Yeah, I love it. It this is a kind of a funky trailer where it starts off with that old-timey 1929 opening before we get that noodling guitar riff to let you know it's not the past anymore, baby. Mm-hmm. And then we get the whole time travel scenario laid out for us with dramatic narration by if, if I'm not mistaken, this is Don LaFontaine, the voice of God himself. It's sometimes a little hard to to track down credentials on on these trailers but i'm like 99% sure this is uh, don lafontaine and eventually they also go ahead and cap it off with another thing i love in uh, particularly 90s trailers is they just use james horner's alien score at the end that that building bum 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 music and uh, you know even though that, that's obviously not the score for this film they were like nope that aliens score that really gets into people's um bloodstream we got to use that as much as possible to sell our films you have 10 seconds to clear minimum safe distance. Yeah. <laughs> and it worked. This movie did, like, financially uh, clear minimum safe distance. And then some. Uh, this was a successful film. Made money. Made people happy. I didn't go 
deep into the critical reaction to Time Cop, but it seems critics were sort of divided on it. And a lot of the people who did like it kind of gave it uh, middling positive reviews. They said like, yeah, it's an okay ripoff of Terminator. Sometimes I read stuff like that and I'm like, these same critics were giving positive reviews to Steven Seagal in Hard to Kill. What was wrong with people? Like they just did not know how to have fun correctly. Yeah, this is a movie that it's it's kind of like it's you know, it's like ketchup and french fries, I guess. You know, it's like you can say, "Oh, well, we need to deconstruct this." You know, what could we do to improve this set or the other? But at the end of the day, it's it's ketchup and french fries and and that's going to that's going to please most of the people who ordered it knowing what they were ordering. So, uh yeah, I I don't get some of the criticism that it got. Like Ebert gave it 2 stars, but it, again, Ebert Ebert's always kind of an interesting litmus test for films like this because Time Cop is exactly the sort of film that I could see Roger Ebert giving at least three stars to. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe even a little more. You never know. But uh, in this case, he was just very much uh, you know, middle of the board on it. Well, it reminds me of Ebert's statement about how when you're a child and you're uh, you have the choice to watch either Gamera, Guardian of the Universe or Air Force One. The child knows that Gamera is better, but then when mm-hmm. you get older and more mature and you think yourself wise, you think, no, Air Force One, that is more realistic. That is better. <laughs> then when you get older, once again, even wiser than that, maybe you gain true wisdom instead of the fake pretentious wisdom of young adulthood. You realize, no, Gamera is better. <laughs> All right. If you want to watch Time Cop uh, before uh, we get into the discussion here, well, lucky you, it's widely available digitally. It's also on DVD and Blu-ray, though I don't think it's been given any special treatment on Blu-ray over the years. I could be wrong, but I, I didn't find anything. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. 
In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. All right, let's jump into the discussion of the people who made this film. The director and cinematographer is Peter Hyams, born 1943. He was born into a kind of show business family, Broadway and theater, and he eventually started off his career in TV journalism in New York City and Chicago, and then Chicago. In 1966, he reported from Vietnam, I believe for a a New York City um, CBS affiliate. And uh, it was during this basic time period that he got into documentary filmmaking. He sold his first screenplay, T.R. Baskin, to Paramount Pictures in 1970, and it was produced in 71 uh, that had Candace Bergen in the, uh, the leading role. He started directing as well on TV movies at first, but then in 74, he directed the comedy Busting, starring Elliot Gould and Robert Blake as cops. Then came a pair of dramas, Outtime and Pepper, both in 1974, but then in 77, he directed the fake Mars landing thriller, I guess you could say it's a conspiracy thriller, Capricorn One. And a number of big films followed, including 81's Outland, a gritty space western starring Sean Connery, uh, Peter Boyle, and also a very early performance from Clark Peters. Uh, I think we've huh. talked about Outland before. Have you seen Outland, Joe? I don't. This is one of those movies I really don't know if I've seen it or not. If I if I have seen it, it did not make an impression. Uh, but I know about it. I, it's supposed to be like a remake of High Noon in Space, right? Yeah. I remember digging it many years ago. I don't know. It might be too grimy for me now. But it's like a grimy uh, space western with uh, Sean Connery as the new sheriff in town. Peter Boyle is the corrupt mine owner. And then a lot of people's heads blow up. Okay. Well, maybe if I watch it, I can figure out if I have already watched it. <laughs> Another big one from Hyams was uh, 2000 and, uh, was the two the film from 1984. Actually, I'm already getting my years confused here due to the time travel anomalies. But 2010, the year we made Contact, released in 1984, he directed that as well. The sequel to 2001: A Space Odyssey, uh, which 2010 generally got pretty positive reviews, but it seems like. I don't know, just kind of a, a, a misguided idea trying to make a sequel to 2001. Yeah, yeah. I It's it's not a film I've seen uh, in its entirety before. I have some friends who are, who are fans of it and, and like it, though you obviously have, go into it with certain uh, understandings. Like, you know it's not going to be 2001. Mm-hmm. It's not the timeless classic that 2001 is, but, it's, uh, but I've heard it's interesting as a mid-80s sci-fi movie. Now, the late 80s saw Hyams direct some uh, mainstream thrillers, but then in the 90s, we got 92's Stay Tuned, one of the many Changing Channels movies. This is the one that starred John Ritter. Uh, It would be interesting to come back and and watch 
one of the many changing channels um, films in the future because there were a number of, of them. I want to say Charles Band was involved in at least one of these. It just kind of a, a weird bug that got into everyone's mind uh, based on the the, uh, the the whole wide realm of cable television and satellite TV channels. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, came Time Cop. He followed this up with another Jean-Claude Van Damme film, Sudden Death, co-starring Powers Booth. Then came 1997's monster film The Relic, followed by 99's End of Days. That's an Arnold Schwarzenegger versus Satan movie. Uh, then there's a 2001 Musketeer film. Uh, the 2005 film adaptation of A Sound of Thunder, which, if I remember correctly, is one of our listeners' favorite films, or at least one that he what? regularly communally watches with some friends. Um, oh. Is that the case? Do you remember this listener mail? Maybe. Well, this might have come up after I mentioned the movie adaptation of A Sound of Thunder, which I noted as being quite bad. Uh, mm. It's Well, it's an adaptation of a... A Ray Bradbury story about the like the butterfly effect. So it's a, you know, time travel uh, thing. But I think it ends up with these like lizard baboons attacking people in the future. And it's got uh, Ben Kingsley, obviously, uh, thinking about what time the bank closes while he's shooting his <laughs> scenes. Uh, like I say, uh, I haven't seen that one, but uh, but there was a Ray Bradbury theater adaptation of it. It was pretty good. All right, so for Peter Hyams, uh, his last movie, his last directorial credit was 2013's Enemies Closer. Um, and that one also starred Jean-Claude Van Damme as the villain, apparently at Hyams' request. Uh, like, they brought him in, he's like, hey, I'll direct this, but I know who you need to cast as the villain is Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, and so they worked it, well together. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You know, the three different films they worked on. And uh, his son, John Hyam, is also pretty much in the Jean-Claude Van Damme business, uh, having um, uh, worked on 2009's Universal Soldier Regeneration and oh. 2012's Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. I did not realize the Universal Soldier series had hit the uh, colon abstract noun phase. Yep, yep, uh, they did. And, you know, I think I remember reading some not bad things about these these later uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, Universal Soldier movies, you know, Re- Regeneration and Day of Reckoning. I can't remember which one is supposed to be good or if they're both good. I don't know. Take that with a grain of salt. I got an idea. Uh, Jetsons meet Flintstones kind of crossover event. It's Universal Soldier meets Hellraiser. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, it would be good for the Hellraiser um, franchise. I think it, it, it needs that kind of shot in the arm. Cross it over, cross it over. There was a, you know, speaking of it, this is a tangent, but there was a, I don't know if it was any good or not. I think I looked at one of them, but somebody did a Hellraiser versus um, Cabal. Uh, what is it? Uh, Nightbreed. Uh, no. Hellraiser versus Nightbreed comic book back in the day. Like that, that, that sounds interesting. Go for that. But they're both Clive Barker things, aren't they? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, you could go outside the Clive Barker. I mean, you could keep it in Clive Barker. Uh, it could be Hellraiser versus Rawhead Rex. That could be interesting. I don't know. It, I mean, he has it's a rich world, rich uh, literary world that he created. Now, speaking of comic books, uh, we should note that Time Cop is based on a Dark Horse Comics comic book uh, series by the same name by Mark Verheiden and Mike Richardson, who also have story and screenplay credits on the film. Richardson also created the comic book The Mask. And yes, it is the mask that the that is the basis for the Jim Carrey movie. And oh. Mark had a story credit on the first movie. You mean the first mask movie? The first mask movie, okay. The Mask, starring 
uh, starring Jim Carrey, that also came out in 1994. So this was a big deal for these two. Um, the, the Dark Horse comics uh, world really uh, got to, to, to come out firing on all cylinders here. And both of these individuals remain active in writing and producing. Now, specifically, Mark Verheiden uh, on this, he has screenplay, story, and comic series credit, Born 56. Um, after 1984, here he, he went on to write an episode of Perversions of Science. This is a would-be sci-fi Tales from the Crypt with a terrible VR sexy robot as the show's keeper. Oh, um, and then there, uh, he did nine episodes of the Time Cop TV series, and eventually such shows as Smallville, the Battlestar Galactica reboot, Heroes, Falling Skies, the um, kind of flash in the pan 2019 reboot of Swamp Thing. Um, I don't know if, it, if that might have been good, but it just came out at a bad time and seemed to have some platform issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has production credits on all of those. His next project is actually writing and EPing a Hellraiser series for HBO Max. I did not know this was coming. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I have my doubts uh, about it. I mean, nothing against um, this creator. I just have doubts that there's anything left in the tank on Hellraiser. That is no problem. A 26-episode season arc cannot solve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I mean, I wish, I wish them the best. I hope it's good. All right, Mike Richardson, on the other hand, screenplay story comic series, also uh, credit on this, also uh, EP, born 1950, the founder of Dark Horse Comics. Mike's writing credits have been limited or more limited compared to his partner on this film. Uh, mostly character credits on mask franchise stuff. But he served as executive producer on such films as 2016's The Legend of Tarzan, 2019's Hellboy, that's the more recent Hellboy film, and both R.I.P.D. movies. In comics, however, it's notable that he was also a writer on the Star Wars Crimson Empire comic series that I've, I've heard good things about. And he also apparently wrote on Time Cop, uh, the comic book. All right. I mean, you know, you didn't come here to hear about the uh, people who wrote this, though. You, you want to hear about Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, who plays Walker, the titular time cop, uh, born 1960. Yep, it's the muscles from Brussels, Dutch-born martial artist turned actor who um, also studied ballet for several years in his teens. Uh, And I've read that Jean-Claude Van Damme himself has attributed ballet for the grace uh, of his movement. So he kind of combines the grace of ballet with the power of karate. He is very graceful, and what he lacks in a in a uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger type of bulk, he has in uh, agility. There's a lot of yes. like jumping and uh, kind of impossible kick postures in this film. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of fluidity to the way he moves that uh, that works well on screen as well. So he and a friend moved to Hollywood in the early '80s to seek acting glory. So his early credits are mostly—I mean, most of it aren't even even credits. There's uncredited background roles for the most part. But he ended up befriending and sparring with Chuck Norris. He also did some bodyguard work at Norris's bar called Woody's Wharf, which is apparently still around under different ownership. You can you can look it up. Uh, it has a website and everything. But his his first role, Jean-Claude Van Damme's first real role of note is the villain in the bonkers movie No Retreat, No Surrender, in which, and I think I've seen this, I think I watched the Riff Tracks version of this, uh, a riff of this. Uh, The the plot is Kurt McKinney is training with Bruce Lee's ghost so that he can ultimately defeat Ivan the Russian Krasinski, played by Jean-Claude Van Damme. I'm going to feel like I'm losing my mind if I'm wrong about this, but I think this is the movie that I saw riffed live by... uh, some former cast members of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Hmm. 
Okay. Now that yeah, now I'm unsure. Maybe I I know I saw it rift, but I'm a little foggy on if it was on the screen or live or what. So one way or another, we've seen this this gem of the motion picture. For the most part, however, this was not people's first in, in their introduction to Jean-Claude Van Damme. For this, we really need to consider 1988's Bloodsport, one of the most iconic Western martial arts films of that era. It introduced Jean-Claude Van Damme's uh, just, I guess, his trademark move, which is doing the splits while violently punching or uh, shoving somebody in the crotch. Probably a punch, I guess. Maybe it's a chop. I can't see because he's all up in there. This was parodied in Mortal Kombat because this is also what Johnny Cage does. And the Mortal Kombat right. character, Johnny Cage, is a parody of Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah. And Bloodsport, this is a film I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember it being a lot of goofy fun. It has uh, Donald Gibb in it, uh, plays this, this lovable biker. Uh, Bolo Young is in it. Uh, playing this just, you know, super intimidating martial artist. And then Forrest Whitaker's in it as well. I do not remember Forrest Whitaker from this film, uh, but he is in the credits. Looks like he's playing a fed of some kind. Mm, okay, makes sense. You know, it's interesting. I don't quite think I realized that Jean-Claude Van Damme doing the splits and punching someone in the crotch was his signature move. But, uh, of course, it makes sense with the Johnny Cage connection. And in Time Cop, I don't think he ever does that, but he does both elements of that independently multiple times. So there are prominent splits and prominent groin punches and kicks. It's weird to try and figure out. Like, maybe it's just, I mean, the splits make sense. Like, this is a great physical stunt that he is capable of. If there is even a, a, a faint reason to have him do it in your film, you go ahead and incorporate it into the plot. It's what the people want to see. The violence to the crotch, however, while part of that original trademark move is not necessarily re required, but I don't know, maybe there's some sort of thematic uh, link there. Like the idea of doing the splits is maybe kind of painful uh, in your mind if you cannot do the splits yourself. And therefore, it's just a short walk to somebody just being like punched in the groin. There's a lot of it in Time Cop, though. In Time Cop, there's at least, I think, one major kick to the groin. There's a scene where he's, like, sort of drumming on a guy's groin with sticks. Uh, <laughs> and then there are, there in the final showdown, there are some guns to the groin of the, the villains. Yes. So, I, I don't know. It seems like it was a recurring theme. It was on their minds for some reason. And somehow, us describing it makes it sound more violent than it actually comes <laughs> off in the film. I don't know why that is. But, um... I don't know. It's very video game-esque, I guess, in the end. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to Jean-Claude Van Damme. In 1989, he ventured into sci-fi properly with Albert Payoun's Cyborg. And then there's just a whole string of Van Damme flicks. Mm. There's 1990's Lionheart with Brian Thompson. 1990's Death Warrant. That one was penned by David Goyer. There's 1991's Double Impact. This is double the Van Damme, in which he plays twins. And also Bolo Jung is back to beat up on them. You know, Van Damme was optioned to play the twins in Dead Ringers. <laughs> that would have been a very, very different film. It's, we need to, I don't know that we've done a, have we done a twins movie before? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't want to do Dead Ringers. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want to do Dead Ringers either. But there's, there's a lot to say about it because uh, on an acting level, it seems like actors of a certain caliber will get to play twins at some point. And it's, you know, it's like the challenge of it. Uh -huh. But then also you get people like Van Damme. And I love Van Damme's performance, but he's not the on the acting level. He's not the pure acting talent where you're like, I need him to play 
uh, opposite himself as twins, you know, um, it seems like it's better left for like the Jeremy Irons of the world. I'm sure there is a good twins movie we could do. We, we'll have to come back to that. Okay. All right. 92. He does Universal Soldier. This is Roland Emmerich's super soldier movie in which he takes on Dolph Lundgren. And then he also starred in 93's Hard Target from John Woo opposite Lance Henriksen. And then 94, he was in the feature film adaptation of Street Fighter, a film of such just crazy good casting and, and bonkers energy that I, I think we, we will have to come back to it at some point. Maybe on a Tuesday we'll do that. Yeah, <laughs> special Tuesday edition. So uh, the Jean-Claude Van Damme train continues to keep on rolling after all of that. Um, highlights include 97's Double Team, co-starring Dennis Rodman, Mickey Rourke, and Paul Freeman, of all people. Other highlights include 99's Universal Soldier of the Return, uh, 2001's The Order, there's 2008's JCVD, uh, we mentioned Regeneration, Kung Fu Panda 2 also gets into voice acting, uh, The Expendables 2, also the TV series Jean-Claude Van Johnson, two kickboxer sequels, I think, like, or at least they have kick, kickboxer on the name. And then he's also a voice talent in Minions, The Rise of Gru. The Rise of Gru. Is Gru one of the Minions? Uh, I think Gru is the, uh, the Minion master. I don't know. I haven't seen these uh, movies. He's what they're Minions of. Yes. Okay. All right. So that's our hero, but you can't have a hero without a villain. And we know from other films, if your hero is also a, a like a muscly action guy with maybe less acting chops, it makes sense to have a, a, a seasoned veteran actor to play off of, to, to be your antagonist. And that's what we have in this film uh, with Ron Silver. I love Ron Silver in Time Cop. He is just the smoothest, sleaziest. Uh, oh, he's great. Yes, yeah, it's 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 a very fun performance. Uh, Ron Silver, yeah, plays Senator Aaron McComb. Silver lived 1946 through 2009. Um, he's the corrupt U.S. senator who harnesses the power of time travel to advance his own political ambitions. Just a really mean guy. Um, Silver himself came up on TV and transitioned into small parts in film. He starred in the CD supernatural thriller The Entity in 1982. He had a supporting role in 83 Silkwood. He plays a vendor, apparently, in 1984's Romancing the Stone, which I, I don't remember. Um, that same year, he appeared in Hurley Burley on Broadway, followed by the, another Broadway play, Social Security. And then in 1988, he won a Tony Award for his performance in the Broadway play Speed the Plow. From there, we see him take on some of the biggest and notable roles of his career. Uh, the lead in 1989's Enemies, a Love Story. The villain role in Catherine Bigelow's 1990 thriller Blue Steel. And the role of Alan Dershowitz in 1990's Reversal of Fortune, opposite Jeremy Irons and Glenn Close as the Von Bulos. So that's a film adaptation of a creepy real-life famous court case that in a lot of ways I think prefigures the sort of uh, true crime podcast obsession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I, I've never seen it in full. I remember when it came out uh, as a young person, I remember like, hearing about it through the media. So I have it, it's still in my head. It's like reversal of fortune is a big deal because it was <laughs> like there's a whole thing about it in Time Magazine and my grandpa's, so it must be really important. Um, but, um, but yeah, also very much a true crime sort of story. And I have gone back and watched clips of it and I, uh, Silver's great as Dershowitz. Uh, there's a lot of nuance to his performance. It's really fun to watch. 
But anyway, probably due in large part to that uh, villain performance in Blue Steel. He is cast as the villain in Time Cop. And as we'll discuss, it's a lot of fun. Um, he also appeared in 1996's The Arrival, written and directed by David Tui. Uh, Tui, of course, would go on to work with Vin Diesel on the Riddick movies and mm. is still working with him on Riddick movies. Silver worked pretty steadily through the rest of his career, uh, with one of the highlights probably being a recurring role on The West Wing. And it's also of note that he directed and acted in a 1993 TV movie called Life Pod, which is a sci-fi take on Hitchcock's Lifeboat. Huh. Oh, and this is also it's interesting. It doesn't really reflect his performance here, but Silver apparently had a master's degree in Chinese history and apparently spoke fluent Mandarin. So, I had no idea. I had no idea, yeah. So uh, his performance in this film maybe lacks the nuance of reversal of fortune, but... Um, but it's still like he's all in. He's not phoning this baby in and, and uh, thinking about when the bank's closing. Um, or at least if he is, he's going for the bank as well. Because, yeah, it's, it's a very energetic performance. And since this is a time travel movie, he's playing his character both in the future and in the present or in the present and in the past, depending on how you look at it. I don't know. Two different versions of the same character, which is kind of fun. I think he's excellent in this movie. He's just fantastic as the slimy, rich guy, politician, villain. Uh, I don't know if this is best to talk about here or later. Maybe we should go ahead and do it here because there was something, Rob, you flagged this to me and I couldn't help but notice it as well. It's kind of unsettling about his character. So I'll just say the villain of this movie is a very rich guy who uh, prominently who like famously has lost a lot of money due to some stupid business decisions. He is a narcissistic bully who constantly abuses his underlings. He runs for president on a theory that he doesn't need endorsements from respected figures or the truth on his side. He just needs to be on television nonstop. One of his signature campaign themes seems to be anti-immigration sentiment. He notably eats a lot of junk food. He promises that he's going to make America like it was the 80s again. Part of his pitch for the presidency is that he'll be so rich he can't be bought off. And there's one part where uh, I can't remember what he did. I think he's just murdered somebody or something. And a character <laughs> says, maybe he'll calm down after the election. You know, he maybe he'll grow to meet the occasion once he understands the seriousness of the office. So, uh, yeah, interesting character in this 1994 movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of ahead of its time in that respect. Um it's a, uh, yeah, great villain role, great villain performance. Um, yeah, he's even hard on his past self. So there's, in a sense, there's negative self-talk in this film because he, he even gives his past self a hard time over the junk food. In a scene in which I think he also, like, uh, shoots a business partner in the head. Yeah. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. 
Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. All right. Uh, the the other uh, of the three top build actors on the cast is Mia Sarah playing Melissa. Uh, Mia Sarah was born in '67. Um, while she had one small role on an episode of All in the Family in '83, her career was launched in a major way when she played Lily in Ridley Scott's 1985 dark fantasy film Legend, opposite Tom Cruise. Legend is a film. Um... I think you and I have discussed the sort of mixed uh, merits and demerits of before. Mm -hmm. It's a weird movie to go back and experience because there's a lot about it that's really good and a lot about it that is kind of boring, actually. And uh, or I don't know, maybe you didn't agree with me on that, but it's like the kind of movie you can't really recommend because overall it's not that great. But also I kind of find myself wanting to bring it up a lot, at least Tim Curry in it or the music in it or whatever. Yeah, it has a lot going for it. I mean, it's a Ridley Scott film, so you know at the very least it's going to be beautiful to look at. I haven't given it a dedicated viewing since I was like in junior high or something. I think when I've had it on since then, it's been in the background or something. So mm-hmm. it's one I'd have to come back and revisit. Uh, but it's one I want to revisit. I, I have a lot of fond memories about it, but I, I still I, I know that it is kind of up and down. Now, one note on Legend that's important for this entry is that it was uh, filmed in massive studios, of course, next to another little mid-80s fantasy production, uh, Labyrinth. Oh. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I wasn't aware of this. First that these two productions kind of overlapped, but also the cast and crew apparently hung out a little during the overlapping productions, which, I mean, mostly that just makes me try to imagine David Bowie's Jareth, the Goblin King, and Tim Curry's Darkness, the Bighorn Demon Dude, like hanging out together and, you know, uh, chilling. 
uh, between the, the the two productions. But having uh, some we, pimento cheese together, yeah, 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 something like that. But we, uh, it's also where Mia Sarah first met Brian Henson, of course, the son of Jim Henson, who worked on Labyrinth. Uh, she would later meet him again and wound up marrying him in 2010. So oh. her future husband, uh, she met on uh, uh, between the sets of Labyrinth and Legend. So anyway, Mia Sarah kicked it off big with this Ridley Scott film, followed that up with the role of Sloane Peterson in 1986's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So right out of the gate, um, two big films, one of which definitely has, I think, maybe more of a pop culture footprint than the other. Now, flash forward to 1993. She appears in two episodes of a TV series called Time Tracks. Would you believe (laughs) this is prior to uh, Time Cop? But it is about a time-traveling policeman who brings back time-traveling fugitives from the past. (laughs) So I wonder if that came up in her audition. It's like, I've been in this movie already. It's like, I've got experience that you can use. I've I've done this sort of thing before. And they're like, well, it just makes sense. Um, So anyway, she does Time Cop. After that, uh, let's see, she was in the 1997 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea miniseries starring Michael Caine. Uh, She also played Harley Quinn on the TV series Birds of Prey in the early 2000s, and she retired from acting in 2013. So another actor in this movie I was watching and I kept trying to place. He is the boss of the time cops in the film, and I finally realized it's the sheriff from My Cousin Vinny. Yes, uh, this is Bruce McGill, born 1950. This is not a guy I recognized at all. I didn't even draw any connections to other films. But when you look him up, you realize, oh, man, this is a longtime character actor whose work goes back to, I think, 1977. He played Daniel Simpson Day or D-Day in Animal House in 78, as well as in the, and I had no idea this existed, Animal House TV spinoff Delta House. Huh? I did not know that was a thing either. It existed in some format. Um, But beyond that, just extensive TV and film credits, often pretty high up in the billing uh, of respectable, you know, for respectable character work in films. He was in Oliver Stone's The Hand in 1981. That's a crawling hand movie with Michael Caine in it. He was in Silkwood in 83. He was in a Tales from the Crypt episode in 91 called The Trap. Uh, As you pointed out, he was in My Cousin Vinny in 92. 18 episodes of the original MacGyver series, Exit Wounds in 2001. He was in Lincoln in 2012, and he's still active. Wait, I just had to look it up to make sure Exit Wounds is the movie with Steven Seagal and DMX. Yes, yes. So, um, hmm, I bet that that was that was that was a fun production to work on. I, mm, I wonder. All right, we also have Gloria Rubin in this playing Fielding, another time cop. Uh, Ruben was born in 64, largely a TV actor prior to this, but afterwards she pops up in films such as 95's Nick of Time, Lincoln in 2012 again, the remake of Firestarter from 2022. Her TV credits include such shows as Homicide Life on the Street, Falling Skies, The Blacklist, and Mr. Robot. I thought she was good, and I was actually really disappointed when her character betrays Jean-Claude Van Damme <laughs> and, is, uh, <laughs> and reveals herself to be working for the villain. I was almost shouting no with the TV. Yeah, yeah. But we find out, I mean, there are reasons for her betrayal. And really, I mean, she's kind of one of the more interesting side characters in the film that I, I kind of wanted to see more from. I kind of This is the kind of character that you could have, you know, at least from a, a narrative standpoint and plotting standpoint, you could have used to, to carry a sequel or a TV series. 
I agree. I, it's also a shame when uh, after her little uh, minor redemption arc, she she gets uh, murdered by the time goons. I feel like I wish she could have sort of buddied up with uh, with Jean Claude for the end. Yeah, that would have been good. All right, uh, a few, just a couple of other really actors of note here. Scott Lawrence plays the character um, George Spada. Is it Spada or Spoda? I can't remember what they said. I think they call him Spoda. Spoda. All right, he's a yeah, he's a, a a government man. I forget what department he's with. I don't know if they even say he he gives like classified briefings to the Senate Oversight Committee. Yeah, that's really his only role in the film. Is he comes in all smooth, he lays out the time travel exposition, and then he's gone. Maybe Macomb had him erased, but maybe they don't even <laughs> suggest that. But it's as if he was erased because he never shows up again. Uh-huh. Um, the, uh, now, the interesting thing about Lawrence, if you look him up, you see a picture of him. He has a distinctive look. So you've probably seen him in stuff before. Uh, I know I'd seen him in some things. But if you have played pretty much a Star Wars video game ever, certainly since 1994, then you have heard him because he's been the go-to voice uh, actor for Darth Vader in everything that has come out since uh, Star Wars TIE Fighter in 94. Really? Did he do Darth Vader in uh, Jedi Fallen Order? He did, yep. Oh, okay. I did not realize it was the same guy. Yeah, I, th- I, thought, he was, I thought he was really good. I played, played through that game, and, uh, and I loved it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, solid Darth Vader uh, from this guy. Now, as an actor, uh, non-voice actor, his credits go all the way back to bit parts on Murder, She Wrote and Newhart, uh, L.A. Law, Murphy Brown, and so forth in the late 80s. But you'll probably more likely to recognize him from 2009's Avatar. I believe he plays a soldier in that. And he was also a long-running character on the TV show Jag. Mm, Jag. That's one of those shows you see a lot of credits linking there, but I've never seen it. All right. And then finally, the music in this film is, uh, is the work of Mark Isham. Uh, born 1951. We, we've talked about him before. Electronic music pioneer turned highly prolific film score composer, uh, skilled on both the trumpet and the synth. His early solo music is especially notable. I went back and was listening to some of it uh, while I was working on notes here, and it's 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 pretty good. Like some of his, uh, I think his, yeah, his 1983 album Vapor Drawings was released on Wyndham Hill, uh, known for you know putting out a lot of uh, especially ambient electronic music back in the day. Um, his work has been held up as an inspiration by specifically Boards of Canada. Hmm. And um, yeah, all that being said, I can't say this, this score really impressed me beyond, like, I guess, just doing what a score needs to do. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, still, it, it gets the job done. Uh, he also scored the, the film Blade, which we previously discussed on Weird House, which definitely had some nice meditative tracks on it. I don't really rem- remember the music in Time Cop, except for the uh, music from Aliens in the trailer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, like I say, it gets the job done, and that's that's good. But it doesn't really stand out to me beyond that. All right, you ready to talk about the plot? Let's do it. Uh, this movie has a historical cold open. We are told, little Chiron says, Gainesville, Georgia, 1863. Yep, this is filmed in Canada, of course, but the setting is only an hour's drive from where we are right now, um, but it's also 160 years from where we are right now. So uh, take that for what it's worth. Yeah, and of course, the historical setting means this would be in the middle of the U.S. Civil War inside Confederate territory. Uh, so Confederate soldiers are on horseback. They're clopping along through the, the mud and the rain. They are drawing a wagon behind them. They come across a creepy guy with a missing tooth standing in the middle of the road. And he tells them he uh, he knows they're transporting a shipment of gold bullion to General Lee. He says they need to give him the gold. And uh, the soldiers, uh, they, they keep referring to 
him as a single guy as y'all. And I was like, is that a historically based thing? I, I was looking up singular usage of y'all. I found some references to it, but I don't know if that, that was intentional. That might just be a bit of confusion there. Uh, real quick, this, uh, this particular actor uh, playing The Stranger is Callum Keith Rennie, born 1960. Um, uh, this was pretty early in his career, but he went on to work a lot on TV, uh, especially Canadian series. Uh, so if you if this guy looks familiar, that's why you've probably seen him in something. He did kind of look familiar to me, but I couldn't have said from what. He, but I mainly just kept noticing his missing tooth, which is uh, he's kind of he's kind of whistling through it while he's saying, give me the gold. Anyway, mm-hmm. they won't do it. They say, no, you don't get the gold. So he opens up his coat and reveals double laser sighted machine guns from the future and blasts <laughs> all the soldiers. And so this might cause one to wonder, oh, what kind of direction is this movie going in? Is this like the well-worn thought experiment? Would you go back in time and kill Hitler before he came to power? This could be a similar thought experiment. Would you economically cripple the Confederacy to cause them to lose the war earlier? Uh, But no, that is not what's going on here. The chrono pirates in Time Cop are, uh, they're not concerned with disabling Nazi Germany or the CSA. They are after the money. They want the gold. Now, they don't bring this up at all, but I wonder if this is how the, the time criminals rationalize things at first. In the same way that the Bone Jackers and Free Jack steal the bodies of people who are about to die in the past, these criminals at least initially target the funds of historically losing sides in conflicts. You know, uh, so it's not actually, you know, it's not paradox free by any stretch of the imagination, but gold and treasure often vanish during these tense periods in history. So you can imagine the time criminals being like, all right, well, nobody's going to miss that amber room if we go back and snatch it. That kind of logic could well be in play. Yeah, but we, we don't ever get that full explanation. So we jump forward in time like 130 years and see a shot of the Capitol building. Always love a shot of the Capitol building in a movie to let us know we're in Washington, D.C. And it's got to be accompanied by a little title that says Washington, D.C. But now we know it's 1994 and it says here's the, the Senate Oversight Committee Covert Operations. And so the Senate Oversight Committee here gets a secret briefing in which they are told the following. Number one, a time machine has been invented by a scientist on our payroll. Uh, number two, you can't go to the future. You can only go back to the past. And we will later learn you, you can return to the present moment from which you came. Number three, this technology is dangerous and it should never be used. Uh, If you go back into the past to make changes, it could have uh, unpredictable, catastrophic consequences for the future. And for this reason, you can't do like you can't go back and kill Hitler. Number four, because it's so dangerous, we need to create some new type of cop, some kind of time cop. And literally, they say we need to create uh, something called a time enforcement commission to police time itself and prevent dangerous, unauthorized use of time travel. Now, this immediately raises big questions like, wait, what is the authorized use of time travel? A government scientist just invented time travel. And as far as I can tell, the only time travel that is then permitted is to go back in time and stop other people from changing the past. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, otherwise, the only thing I can think of is historical research. You want to go back and see what actually happened at pivotal points in history and get a, you know, unbiased uh, view of what occurred. Or it's just purely tourism. I don't know. Like pick any historic moment in the past. You go back and you just watch it as a tourist. You want to see the Sphinx before the, the face decayed. 
Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. You want to see, like, all of the wonders of the ancient world back when they were still standing, you know? I guess that could make sense. But, of course, we know <laughs> that it, it, it would never work out like that. I mean, we, we've all, we all know the, the, about the, the, the butterfly effect. We know about the sound of thunder in Ray Bradbury's stories. We know about Homer Simpson stepping on dinosaurs. So uh, any of these ideas would inevitably lead to chaos and paradox, or at least paradox. But despite this knowledge, it doesn't stop them from getting into trouble. You know what, Dad? Your hand's in the toaster again. It just keeps <laughs> happening. Uh, so this scene includes a few bits uh, more of, of plot setup. We see them tap Bruce McGill, playing a character named Matushak, to head up the TEC. Um, let's see. Oh, and they say that they, they've got proof that they need these time cops. And they cite the fact that terrorists have been purchasing weapons with the use of Confederate gold stolen from the past. And the agent here says, we had it carbon dated and it's real. <laughs> I feel like uh, another direction they could have gone in with this film is they could have had a great split second ask buddy cop structure where one cop is an historian who's always on about how he can't cause ripples in the time stream. And the other is just all about busting heads in the past. Yeah. Well, wait, but which one would Jean-Claude Van Damme be the nerd or the Harley Stone guy? Mm, I mean, that's the thing. Jean-Claude Van Damme is kind of both in this. He's yeah. he's very he's very lawful good. Until the fight starts, and then he's just brutal. I don't know. I mean, I guess these you can still be brutal and awful good in a D and D scenario. But um, once he starts fighting, um, you know, your your DM may ask for some sort of a a check on your uh, on what your alignment actually is. By the way, when I was thinking about this, I I was trying to remember the name of the Rutger Hauer character in Split Second. It is Harley Stone. I remembered it right. But when I looked that up to confirm, I discovered this is also the pin name of what appears to be an author of erotic motorcycle books. Okay. I mean, it's a good name for that, too. All right. So they have a new government uh, body to govern time travel. They bring in uh, a guy who used to run the D.C. police force to run it because that makes sense. But uh, who's going to head up oversight over this program? Good question. A grinning Ron Silver in the corner casually offers to do it. Yes, yes, I will accept this godlike power, sure. <laughs> and this is Senator Aaron McComb. Uh, let's cut to somewhere else. Next, we go to a shopping mall, 1994. I guess it's supposed to be a shopping mall in the Washington, D.C. area. And what can we say to describe this glorious beautiful setting there's like an a and w a bunch of kiosks selling what look like christmas decorations there are big camera facing advertisements for nissan and other things yeah presumably this is a canadian mall because i think everything was filmed in canada uh, but the interiors are great i did not see a sign for hot pogos um, aka corn dogs uh, so I was a little disappointed in that. But otherwise, it's a great mall environment uh, that we find our characters running around in. And we encounter a little bit of Jean-Claude Van Damme mall vigilantism. Wait, what if this was the same mall as Scanners? <laughs> anyway, yes, yeah, yeah. So there's there's vigilantism. Wait, but before we get to that, okay, so there's a flirty meetup between Jean-Claude Van Damme playing police officer Max Walker and uh, and Mia Sarah playing his wife, Melissa, and they they... I don't know. They meet each other. It's like, oh, hi, it'd be nice if I was married to you. Good thing I am. Yeah. And uh, she makes a crack about his uh, his English. And he's like, it's OK. I know all the best words. And then he um, he leans in and whispers something in her ear and she giggles. And I, I spent way too much time running through the possibilities of what words he could have possibly whispered to her. And there are no not dumb choices. They're all, <laughs> they're all ridiculous. 
I, I assumed he said a bad word. Yeah, but even though, like which one? If you start yeah. actually like like framing it out and thinking about it, all dumb choices. There's there's no suave move. Uh, I'm glad glad we didn't hear him say it. Whatever it was. Anyway, she's asking, oh, are you going to take that new job with the Time Enforcement Commission? And he goes, I don't bake cookies for a living. <laughs> okay. It doesn't uh, make sense, but okay. Yeah. But, the, oh, but there, so there's there's a mugging. Sorry, you, you mentioned this. There's a mugging. A dorky-looking dude wearing rectangular sunglasses indoors, a red bandana on his head, a red and white plaid long sleeve polo shirt with the sleeves rolled up just a bit to reveal that underneath the plaid polo shirt, he is wearing a long sleeve white T-shirt, all of it tucked into jeans with a belt with a wallet chain on rollerblades with neon green laces. And he, he rolls by and snatches an old lady's purse. <laughs> Yeah, I love this obviously like 40-year-old punk kid that they encounter here. And at first I was thinking, oh, this is probably a stunt player. So, you know, the stunt players, you know, they look like what they look like. And, you know, uh, but uh, but I looked this guy up and I think he has like Shakespearean credits in his background. So oh, I don't cool. know how this casting came together. But he's got some good stories from the set of Time Cop. Yeah. Um, at any rate, does not look like a punk kid who should be snatching purses in a 90s mall. Jean-Claude Van Damme stops him with, like, the sole of his boot to his face. Like, he doesn't kick him, but he, like, does a kick pose with his leg up at, like, a, you know, a hundred-degree angle. It's, like, way up there. The the boot facing the, the mugging guy, he screeches to a halt on his rollerblades, and then he's like, read the sole of my boot. And he reads Wolverine, and then, you know, anyway. Uh, so he, like, scares the guy into giving the, the purse back. So I think we're supposed to take from this. Oh, wow. He's a really tough cop. He's a really cool guy. And very lawful. Like, he sees something bad going on, he's going to jump in there and fix things. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So at some point while at the mall, Max glances up at the mezzanine in uh, above them and he sees a couple of weird looking dudes staring down at him. These are going to be recurring characters. These are future time goons. But honestly, the best way I could describe them is that they remind me of the early 90s wrestling duo, the Nasty Boys. You're absolutely right on this. I think this is something I didn't think of this while I was watching it, but something was like uh, sparking in my brain. And yeah, strong Nasty Boy vibes to these uh, time goons. Uh, time goons very much in the spirit of the two time goons from Highlander 2, only less yeah. extreme. Like, not that, like, obviously from the future. These guys are blending in a little bit. Um, I didn't mark the players earlier, but I, I think the main ones we see are Canadian stuntmen, Brent Woosley and Stephen Lambert. Excellent time goons. I love them. But as soon as uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme glances back, they're gone. Quick note at the mall, the music they're playing, you might not have caught this, is the band Chicago's 1970 single, Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is? Ha, nice. Anyway, Max and Melissa, they go back home uh, for some romance, and then Max gets a phone call saying he has to go out on some kind of police business. And Melissa has something important to tell him. Uh, What could it be? But we will have to wait until he gets back. Unfortunately, that won't happen because as he heads out the front door, they are suddenly attacked again by the science fiction punks, including the Nasty Boys and just guys who generally look like Krang's body in a trench coat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I think these are all stunt players, uh, but but they're all, they all look tough and or cruel. Uh, even the guys who aren't as brawny have a real kind of like uh, lean and hungry look to them. So uh, I bought all the all the time goons we encounter in this movie. So I think you're supposed to wonder, who are these guys? Why? Why are they? Why is this couple being attacked? Uh, We don't we are not to know for now. But Max is shot and left for dead outside. Uh, But then it turns out he was wearing body armor and he survives and he tries to go back to rescue Melissa. But before he can do that, the house explodes in a giant fireball. And this movie just keeps things rolling because before you even really have time to process this, we're off to another time. That's right. Now it's Wall Street, October 30th, 1929, uh, which would be one day after the so-called Black Tuesday. This is the beginning of the Great Depression. We follow a bigwig stockbroker named Atwood who is busy buying shares of oil companies and such things while everybody else is busy selling. And we see him consulting a list of stock prices from a copy of USA Today from the 21st century. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, we have a little white-collar time crime on our hands here. Yeah, I'd imagine if time travel invented, there'd be a lot of that. We have a a no-good time traveler screwing up the past so he can get rich in the future. 
I also have to say it's interesting. Manipulating the past has got to be a lot easier if it's an open book test. Like you can take newspapers Mm -hmm. from the future with you. Anyway, Atwood sitting at his desk doing financial time crimes, listening to heavy metal music on a secret Walkman that he had hidden in his bag. And then, oh, here's JCVD. Max Walker is here to arrest him. It seems Atwood is a time cop like Max, but now he's a time criminal. Mm, Yeah, he turned bad. And when we see uh, Jean-Claude here, he looks very different than he did before. He's older. Obviously, he has been sent back from farther in the future than the last scene we saw. Uh, So, Rob, is it time for a digression on hair? Yeah, I think one of the central messages in this film is that you will have better hair in the future. I'd say the difference is that... uh, He goes from, in the 90s era, he has a sort of slick pompadour with, I don't know what you call that, is is it like the duck back where it's sort of like rolled in from the sides and the back? Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. In the future, it's like edge of mullet, but he does look cool. Yeah, it's like everybody, we also see this with Ron Silver's character. Uh, In the future, hair is going to be slicker. Um, It's just, I don't know, like uh, just the wet look is in. Uh, once you get into the uh, the far future of, well, what is it, 2004? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 2004. Uh, so Max tries to arrest this guy Atwood. We get an action scene. Atwood uh, brings in his 1929 security guys. There's a guy with like a wax mustache who does the backwards fist fighting stance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just does not stand a chance against the future-based fighting techniques of our hero. But there's exposition in the scene because Atwood reveals that he is working for a big time crime boss. And his boss is Senator Aaron McComb. That's Ron Silver. He is the chair of the committee that oversees time crimes in the Senate. And now he's running for president. He's smart. He's ruthless. And he will go back in time and wipe out Atwood's entire family if he testifies against him. So Atwood cannot flip. Mm. Another thing is that Atwood also explains that Macomb is stealing all this money from the past for a specific reason. It's so he can get money for his presidential campaign. Something about this seemed really funny to me. Like, couldn't he just get money from, like, if he's going to do crime, couldn't he just get money from some corrupt, self-interested billionaire in the future? It doesn't seem that hard. Yeah, just just juice the donors a bit. Um, But no, he decides to go back in time and do shady things in the past in order to gain money to take into the future or to collect on in the future. Anyway, Atwood tries to jump out the window at the skyscraper to avoid being taken back by Walter to testify, or not Walter, Walker, uh, but then Walker jumps after him and he like grabs him in midair and dials home on his time phone in midair <laughs> to take him back. So the dude is captured. Walker takes him back to where they came from, which is the year 2004. <laughs> Yes, a far future full of self-driving cars and uh, fancy guns. Uh, Basically, those are the main two bits of technology we see. Yeah, a lot of computer screens. Yeah, yeah, but we don't see what they're eating. We don't get a sense of, like, what will smoothies be like in the future? What will Frogert be like in the future? We don't know. No, they really don't go into that at all. Um, So they arrive at the TEC headquarters in Washington. Uh, This place is kind of a set from, like, aliens. There's no normal doors in the future. Mm -hmm. It's all just, like, the sliding powered pressure lock doors and the spinning red lights on the ceiling and all that. Uh, So Atwood is, is taken straight to his time trial. No lawyer, no jury. Here's a judge. You are guilty. Prepare to die. Yeah, time court is more than a little totalitarian. I mean, I guess at least the judges don't have masks or hoods on. And his punishment is 
uh, this did not make sense at all to me. It is execution by time travel. So he is transported back to 1929 in the middle of the air and dropped like on a car and he's killed by the impact. I thought the whole point of the TEC division was to avoid people going back and messing around in the past. And so now they are executing people for going into the past by sending them into the past and dropping them on the sidewalk. Yeah, uh, the best I could (laughs) figure out on this one is that by the time they arrested him, there had been like, say, like 44 different uh, changes to the time stream. And then they did a 45th change by stopping him mid-drop. And so they're actually like correcting it by one by just throwing him back in and letting him finish the fall. Mm. That's my best. That's the best I can do, though. (laughs) All right. Well, after all this, Max is very disappointed because he knows Ron Silver is behind all of the time crimes, but he doesn't have a witness to testify against him. So he can't do anything about it. Uh, So we see a little bit of the day-to-day life of the time cops. We see them, you know, trying to pick up signals of time-traveling assassins, time-traveling thieves. They have to go out and stop them and all that. Uh, Of course, the the boss is still uh, Bruce McGill playing this guy named Eugene Matushak. The scene is interrupted by a tour of politicians who do oversight on the TEC, including Ron Silver, who has graciously taken time out of his presidential campaign to accompany them. And you can see in the office, they've got like a dartboard with a um, Aaron McComb for president poster on it. They quickly turn that around and hide it. And in this scene, uh, Walker gets up in McComb's face and he's like, I know it's you. (laughs) I know this is a convention of cop movies. You got to have the cop, I don't know, be a tough guy who like lets the crime boss know that he's on to him. But it makes no sense in the context of this movie when you know he could go back in time and wipe you out of existence, which he does do or he does try to do. Uh, And also by doing this, this isn't explored, but presumably Walker ensures that Macomb will go wipe out Atwood's entire family from history, who presumably did nothing to deserve this, because now he knows that Atwood told Walker, even though he didn't testify. I mean, he's just lawful good to a fault. He like he comes up to McComb and he's like, hey, just so you know, you were breaking the law with all of this. Yeah, uh, it is illegal. Um, I'm going to I'm going to arrest you one day because that's my job. Yeah, Please don't use time travel to destroy me in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's also illegal, dude. You don't don't do that as well, because that's that's illegal. You're just going to make more crimes. Come on, cut out the crimes. Uh, Also in the scene, we learn that McComb missed out on making billions of dollars because of a bad business deal. Back in the 90s, he was co-owner of a business that now makes all the superconducting chips that power all of the time travel technology. But he sold his share in this company right before his partner got the patent on the chip. So he missed out on the money. Doe. Anyway, in this scene, Ron Silver explains that he wants to eliminate the entire Time Enforcement Commission because of the dangers it poses. What if an agent goes back in time and makes contact with themselves, with their own body? And uh, the, they explain that, you know, this is in the technical reports, quote, the same matter cannot occupy the same space at the same time, which made me think, huh, isn't that by definition what is always happening? <laughs> Yeah, this is a this is like a rule, an important rule in the in the time cop universe. And it's one that I, I sometimes I find myself just thinking back on in life, just trying to figure out what it means. Uh, and, and I never quite can do it, though. Sometimes it does feel truthy enough that if you don't think about it too much, you can be like, yeah, yeah, 
that that absolutely cannot happen. That would be a paradox uh, and it would destroy everything. But if you think too hard about it, there are all sorts of holes that emerge in the logic here. But in the context of the movie, literally all it means is that, like, you can't touch the body of your past self because there will be vague, disastrous consequences. Yeah, it's kind of like in the Back to the Future. It's established that just looking at you, encountering yourself in the past, it could potentially have this devastating effect. But I don't know. I guess the best I can do is like if you're it's like if you touch yourself in the past, then that means the effect is coming before the cause and there's some sort of temporal um, like just a paradox that destroys itself kind of thing happens. That's the best I can do. But why would that only be touch? I mean, you could cause all kinds of changes like characters talk to each other in the past. Oh, yeah. Well. Yeah, they breathe in the same room with each other. And then you can also true, argue yeah. that, like, if if it's significantly far enough in the future, it's not the same matter. Like, there's things have, like, you get down to discussions of how, how much of your body is the same as your body from 10 years ago, that sort of thing. That is a very good point. Okay, okay. So, wait, villain scene in a villain limo. This has got a future villain oh, yes. limo that Ron Silver gets into to talk about all of his plans to commit more crimes and do evil. Can we talk about the 21st century cars in this film? Oh, I love them. These are better than the sci-fi cars in Free Jack, uh, in my opinion. Uh, these big windowless, uh, especially the limo. The presidential limo looks really nice. Uh, this just sleek, windowless robot car that you climb into and you ride around town in. They look like big dust busters on top of a, <laughs> we a set of wheels. Yeah, yeah. Or some of those like fancy shoes you see that um, they're like, who wears that? Well, this, that's what this looks like. All right. Well, in the car, Ron Silver gets a breakdown of the latest polling results in his presidential campaign. Now, I thought it was interesting that a lot of movies of this period, if you got a megalomaniac politician as a villain, the movie would be very vague about what his political positions were, I, I guess, for fear of alienating half of the audience. But Time Cop doesn't shy away. It, no. it gives specifics. Ron Silver's constituency is the, the this is a quote, the pro-life, pro-death penalty coalition and the, quote, close the border America for Americans anti-immigration faction. Those are his people. Yeah. As I was watching this film right before this scene, I was I was thinking idly to myself, I wonder if McComb's supposed to be, uh, you know, of this political party or the other political party. And then they just straight up and t tell me, yeah. which again, yeah, is just not the move you would expect from certainly a modern film with a character like this in it. Well, his aide says uh, in order to win, he's going to need a lot more money. And then Ron Silver just like smashes his aide's face against the side of the car. And he's like, don't tell me what I can't do. Um, uh, he says elections are won with television while his aide is cringing and holding his bloody nose. He says he doesn't need endorsements from the establishment. He doesn't need facts on his side. He just needs money and media exposure. And to get the television time he needs, he'll have to steal $50 million. Clearly, Jean-Claude Van Damme is getting in the way of this. So he asked this like creepy, silent hench dude at the other end of the limo to go have a chat with him. <laughs> And then there's a scene of him just like devilishly chewing peanuts. <laughs> yeah. And offering peanuts to the to the aide that he just walloped. Yeah. yeah. Just a great villain performance by Silver. 
Okay, next we got an action scene where uh, Walker is asleep in his apartment and he is attacked by Macomb's goons. Uh, I thought this was a, a really, really fun action scene and really funny. So, like, the creepy guy from the limo attacks him with a taser. There's another guy there who's, like, a, a martial artist who attacks him with a knife. And there's, like, a knife duel. And the scene also has the famous underwear jump splits onto the kitchen counter. Real quick, uh, the the knife wielding guy who's credited as knife number one is James Liu, born 1952. He was in Big Trouble in Little China, playing uh, one of the gang members in the big gang battle. But he was also martial art, a martial arts choreographer on that film as well. And he's been in tons of stuff. Uh, he's been like a go to guy for martial arts uh, in Hollywood for decades. He's great in this scene and this fight is super fun. But this is also the fight I was talking about earlier that's really funny because they're just like they just keep like clacking their knife blades together when, you know, they're not that long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Walker, uh, after this fight, he gets a new partner, you know, his boss is like, this is one of the best parts of any hyphen cop movie. You got to get a new partner. Yep. And, um, uh, and this is where we meet, uh, agent Sarah fielding. Right. So they are going to be sent out into the field together. Fielding is with internal affairs and, uh, initially obviously they're butting heads, but, they're sent out into the field together to stop a disturbance in time in 1994 uh, that is, of course, being caused by Ron Silver going back in time to do something wicked. And this leads to the whole time launch scene. Do you want to describe the time <laughs> launch rocket sled scene, Rob? Yeah. Oh, my God. So uh, we've seen people emerging and reentering like time distortion bubbles uh, in the in the past already, but we didn't know how they were getting there. We didn't know what the apparatus looked like. This is where we find out via seeing it, but also some narration between the, the newbie fielding and, uh, and, uh, and, and Van Damme, you know, the old hand at this. And this is where we realize, oh, well, everything in the time cop headquarters looks like an underground bunker because I guess it is. They have some sort of like weird accelerator system built in here and it's how they achieve time travel. It seems to involve climbing into a rocket-propelled sled that is then launched at some sort of enormous magnet monolith. And if it goes, everything goes well, then you're going to be like blasted through the time bubble to your destination. But if it doesn't go well, you're going to be splatted against the wall. Like the Volmer twins. Yes, they make what? multiple mentions to the Volmer twins. I didn't know. It's almost like that was a reference to something that like the, the fans would get. But I didn't understand what that was about. Yeah. Or or I think you mentioned earlier, too, maybe it's a deleted scene. Maybe there was a scene with Volmer twins. Like, I, I want to know more about the Volmer twins now. Apparently they were splatted against the wall. But yeah, what's the deal with so sometimes you go through the rocket sled and you appear in the past, like in the air and fall into the reflecting pool at the Capitol. And then other yeah. times you just like walk into a guy's office from the time field. Yeah, sometimes you just stroll in coolly, uh, you know, as if you just strolled in from the other side and not as if you were just aboard a rocket propelled sled that was about to make you vomit. So it's very inconsistent uh, in this film, but I don't know. I, I love the inconsistency of it. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So Walker and Fielding, they they bond. They have some banter about uh, time travel, and they they go back to 1994 and investigate this disturbance. Of course, it is Ron Silver trying to change history. Macomb is going back to visit himself in an industrial warehouse while his past self is in the middle of trying to sell out his share of that computer chip company that would have made him billions if he'd stayed uh, a partner in it. Future Ron Silver talks to 1994 Ron Silver. He tells him to stop eating candy bars, and then he kills his business partner, and he says, you own the company now. Why would that be the case if his partner was just murdered? He says uh, "He says that they can't touch each other because the same matter cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And then Walker and Fielding sting the meeting. They come out and... They're like, hands up, everybody. But Fielding betrays Walker. Turns out she was working for Macomb the whole time. And then there's another action scene. Uh, this one, this one, I will say the first half of it, I liked less than some of the other action scenes because it's just a lot of shooting and it's, you know, standard 90s uh, gunplay slop. But mm-hmm. it later turns into a martial arts scene that involves a uh, a... Uh, what's it called? A uh, uh, liquid nitrogen freezing and shattering moment, which is awesome. Yeah, because again, this has to do with like uh, super cool computer parts, and also, of course, they have big 
big uh, containers of liquid nitrogen. Uh, one of the uh, the time goons gets his arm frozen in a fight with Van Damme. And then, of course, Van Damme kicks that arm, shatters that arm. Uh, it's a quality kill. One we've mentioned on the show before, uh, back when we did an episode about uh, the potential science of freezing and shattering uh, biological matter. I think that uh, we, I think we did a couple of episodes maybe on that mm-hmm. called something like shatter like shatter me like sub zero I think <laughs> yeah something like that so Walker go uh, so oh well, Walker escapes uh, Fielding is wounded here but not killed uh, Walker goes back to the future now Ron Silver has he's changed the past and the future has changed as well he's way ahead in the polls now he because he's so rich I guess he's like thirty points ahead he's definitely going to win and become president. Walker convinces his boss, Bruce McGill, of what happened, and they managed to send Walker back to the past in the rocket sled once again, despite the fact that TEC is now being ruled over by a corrupt Ron Silver, uh, whose goons come in and, and shoot Matushik. And then Walker, so he goes back to the past once again. There is a redemption scene for Agent Fielding in the hospital. Uh, she he goes to talk to her and she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I worked with Macomb. And she agrees to be a witness in time court against Ron Silver in the future. But before that can happen, she is murdered by the by the nasty boys. I can't remember if it's this scene or earlier, but we do find out like she's only turned and uh, agreed to work with Macomb because he threatened her parents. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So she had no choice uh, in the matter. Um, I mean, she had a choice, but she has reasons for turning to the bad side, which I, you know, I thought was uh, uh, some some good development. Yeah, like I said earlier, I kind of wish that maybe they could have teamed back up and and uh, been buddies for the for the end. But mm-hmm. alas, killed by the nasty boys, and so now uh, now dude is on the run. Walker's running from them. And he, but then sort of the the plot takes a sharp turn here because he realizes he's come back in time early enough to prevent his wife from being murdered by the nasty boys. So he meets her in a mall, convinces her that it's really him from the future, (laughs) conspires with her in secret uh, to, to like keep him secret from his past self, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. There's so much that goes on. Like this film is it does such a great job of stringing all this together, because also while he was checking on fielding at the hospital, he found his wife's pregnancy results that's just on right. the same yes. tray. As her oh, blood I forgot results. about that. Yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, that's what the secret was that or that's not the secret. That's what the news was that she was going to tell me is that yeah. she was with child. Right. I, maybe that's the thing that makes him want to go do this instead of just getting on with his work. Uh, but this leads to a huge showdown at their house uh, the night Ron Silver's goons uh, are sent back to kill them. Uh, but this time, future Van Damme is there to help the two of them in the past. So this turns into a long, massive action sequence at and around their house. Uh, mm-hmm. I will say the action here was up and down for me. There were some parts that were really great, others that were less interesting. But the payoff at the end when they they finally have uh, when they finally confront Senator Macomb is so good. It's perfect. It has terrible 1994 CGI that is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And it's the payoff of what we've been hearing the whole movie. The same matter cannot occupy the same place at the same time. They try that with Senator Macomb's body. Yeah. Now, the setup to this is also brain breaking. 
because we have the big shootout, all sorts of time goons are killed. But finally, there's like an explosive device. Um, future Ron Silver has uh, Mia Sarah held captive, and he's like, I'll blow it up. You know, it doesn't matter to me because my future, my past self is out there. He's going to benefit. And so if I die now, then he still grows up to be me in the future. So it doesn't matter. But he grows up to be you, and then you come back to the past and die here. Hey, are you the head of, of time travel policing, Joe? <laughs> Trust McComb. He knows how this works. He's the mastermind. So at any rate, yeah, I agree. The, the logic, it does not make sense. No. But, but McComb believes that he has the upper hand here. But then, oops, in strolls 1994 McComb. Uh, and he's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, you left a message that I needed to show up here. And he says, I did no, did no such thing. Ah, uh, this is uh, this is what Van Damme has done. He was the one who left that message. He orchestrated this. And now McCombs like, well, this is just going to be a multiple homicide. And now it's going to be a bloodbath. And uh, and then then we get the payoff. We get some uh, some fun one liners back and forth. But it ends with uh, a tussle over the gun and. Jean-Claude Van Damme's character kicks 94 Macomb into 2004 Macomb, and now matter is occupying the same uh, same space at the same time. So, yeah, they start melting together and screaming. At one point, they've got, like, the two faces and, like, their <laughs> eyes are joining, and uh, it's it's very, well, eventually they turn into what looks like, I don't, like a CGI version of, like, an endoscopy procedure, Mm-hmm. And then just puddle, and then the puddle it just evaporates into nothing. So it's like they, they just consume themselves and are just completely removed from all timelines. Uh, though I guess they can still remember him. So on some level, I don't know. It breaks my brain if I think about it too much. But at any rate, Macomb in the past, Macomb in the future are gone. Macomb, it's as if Macomb never existed. And uh, yeah, I remember thinking doesn't... this, it, it doesn't, it, like I say, the closer you look, the, the more... Uh, brain destroying it becomes but how they all get here and (laughs) yeah it just you gotta yeah you you can't think about it too much but uh, i do remember loving this sequence back in the day Uh, when i saw it in the 90s i was like this is amazing these effects are amazing now it's a bit dated looking i think the sound effects hold up really well the sound effects help sell it I would not want good effects here. I want these effects to be exactly as bad as they are. It's perfect. It looks like an after dark screensaver. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, it shouldn't look too biological. It's not supposed to look like a, a realistic melt because it's not. This is a uh, this is something happening with like uh, like a time paradox resolving itself by by destroying matter uh, across time lines or something. At any rate, it's a quality kill. Yes. Uh, so the evil Senator Macomb is defeated. Jean-Claude Van Damme, Mia Sarah, and uh, their son live happily ever after. We see like into the future and there's like, <laughs> oh, happy family times. And it's, yeah. it's a happy ending. We get some sweet, I think like some sweet do-do-do kind of music. And that's the end. Now, when Jean-Claude Van Kidd runs out and he scoops him up, I immediately was like, okay, this is the happy ending. But he does he doesn't remember, he doesn't know this child at all. He's going to have to no. like go in and get the, a full breakdown from uh, from Mia Sarah about who this kid is and what his relationship to him is. He's going to have to look at some photo galleries or something. Um, or at least it's not implied that suddenly a full recollection of this, this uh, timeline yeah, comes into his mind. That didn't make sense to me. I, I didn't know. And I don't know. As with all the time paradoxes, I think you just can't think about it. So that's Time Cop. 
Yeah, it's time cop. Um, yeah, good luck trying to resolve uh, the various uh, time paradoxes in this film. Uh, don't do not try it. Uh, but all that aside, still a super fun '90s sci-fi action film. Uh, really, probably the Van Damme action film to rewatch uh, if you're not looking for a, a pure martial arts picture. Now, we, of course, watched this movie in the future. I mean, we're in the future even compared to uh, 2004. Uh, we would love to hear from anyone who has recollections like we do of watching it in the past. Did you uh, watch it back. in 1929? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that, that was another thing I was thinking. Like, if what else did Macomb do to raise money? Like, uh, to go back in the past, like maybe as he's running for president, they're like, hey, he's that guy who wrote that song, Hey Jude, and Let It Be. Um, yeah. He wrote so God many classic songs. Yeah. <laughs> That's where he made most of his money. He invented the Mr. Coffee. I mean, <laughs> he's just like looking around his house. It's like, all right, that guys get in the get in the time sled. We're going back to invent the Mr. Coffee. Daddy needs a little more money for the campaign. He's singing Thriller in the commercial for the Mr. Coffee. <laughs> yeah, another great, great tune that he wrote. All right. Well, hey, if you want to write into us about time travel and time cop, uh, please do. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we, you know, we'll probably discuss those on our, our listener mail episodes, which air in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed every Monday. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we do core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We're mostly a science podcast, but then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. If you want to see a complete list of all the films we've uh, discussed so far, you can go to letterbox.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. We have a profile there. It's Weird House. We have a list there of all the films we've done uh, with links to where you can listen to them. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. Give your glucose alerts and readings from the G7. Do not match symptoms or expectations. Use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.